0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, January 25th, 2023, and we'll be answering three questions today that we've been hearing from international educators over the last week. As we get started each week, we like to uh, give you an idea of how we get to where we are each week with our questions. And we start that with our newsletter that comes out on Monday mornings on our through our email uh, newsletter subscription service, which you can get at uh, SMIEconsulting.org slash subscribe. I'm dropping a link to that in the chat on the Facebook channel and YouTube channel. So you'll get that link if you wish to receive. uh, Fill out your details there if you'd wish to subscribe to the email version of our newsletter. I'll also put this week's edition of our newsletter in the chat it's uh, called the newsletter is called all the smie news fit to share and in case you're wondering smie stands for social media and international education consulting so our news stories each week come from those two areas and oftentimes where they where those two areas overlap so between our newsletter on uh, through our website and the LinkedIn version of it, in case you prefer to get your international ed news on LinkedIn, uh, that between those two ser- uh, services, the LinkedIn version and our email version of the newsletter, we now are just a, two or three subscribers away from hitting 1,000 a, a subscribers to the SMIE newsletter. So uh, thank you again for making that a part of your regular journey in international education discussion each week. And we take the themes from uh, that I see in some of the news stories we cover in the newsletter, and we see if there are commonalities in some of the stories and devise our questions around those themes. And uh, this week, our first question is What are the best practices in international student recruitment? And obviously, you can talk for days on this topic. There are workshops that will last two days at NAFSA each year uh, if you're doing it right. And there are the kinds of things that you discuss in uh, in to answer this question, uh, this is this is my uh, my favorite topic, and when I talk about best practices in international education, it, particularly international student recruitment, uh, is is an area that is near and dear to my heart. It's where the majority of my professional career has been focused on what are we doing to not only bring international students to campus, but then uh, what are we doing uh, to take care of them once they're on campus, which will come later in our chat today. But uh, the reason I, I have this framed as a question is uh, this coming Thursday, so tomorrow tomorrow afternoon, uh, we're gonna be doing a, a webinar with through IDP Connect and I'm one, on, one of the three university panelists on that topic uh, that'll be presenting. And we're gonna be answering a lot of different questions. I've dropped the link to the registration page for that webinar tomorrow. Uh, so I encourage you all to, if you have the, have time, uh, certainly register for it. If you can't watch it live, much like these uh, Much like these live sessions on Wednesdays, uh, I know the majority, greater majority of people will watch it on repeat either on Facebook or YouTube, Twitter, whenever they have time. But uh, for uh, for those that are interested, uh, if you register, you can at least get the download uh, or uh, get the link to the recording of the session uh, usually on Friday, day after the event. So uh, definitely register so you can get... Uh, link to it. Uh, we haven't done it yet, so it's going to be exciting to see what uh, what kind of topics come out of this. But there are going to be some general themes that we're going to be discussing uh, in terms of uh, refreshes to our recruitment strategies coming out of the pandemic. What are we uh, re- relying on now as part of our go to strategies? Are we back to all in person recruitment? Are we doing a blend, and how how what's the balance between digital and virt- and in person? So we'll talk about some of those challenges and topics that we're covering. Just to give you an idea on some of the questions we're gonna be answering tomorrow. Uh, What do you see as the greatest challenge to international student recruitment in 23? Uh, What is one essential best practice for recruitment success this year? Second, uh, third, what markets are you watching this year? How do you use data to drive your strategy? gen z has unique needs how do you meet those Uh, what is your diversification strategy looking at the different uh, places where you can potentially move into that you're not active in now how can we uh, talk about career outcomes and return on investment uh, from the student perspective knowing how important that is uh, looking at admissions policies that might, uh, might be, uh, potentially need to change to become more attractive to uh, to certain demographics in certain countries. So those are the kinds of topics we're going to be talking about in, in terms of best practices. And from my perspective, this is, a, this is an area that I've um, spent a lot of time on and I've been fortunate enough in my current position at UNLV uh, where I uh, assumed uh, the role of, uh, back in May as Director of Global Recruitment and Partnerships, uh, where I was halftime for uh, about six months, and then in November went full-time. So fully remote from home in Ohio, but I do, uh, in, in building a, building our uh, an international recruitment strategy, I'm in a position where uh, the university really hadn't done anything Um, intentional when it came to international student recruitment we had different graduate departments that were kind of doing their own thing we had some undergraduate programs uh, that have been highly ranked that were attracting international students from abroad but we didn't have an agent network we didn't have counselors on the ground that uh, in certain high schools and secondary schools around the world Uh, we weren't partnering with a whole lot of institutions Uh, there's a select few that we had and a couple core academic areas but there wasn't any coordination of efforts at the campus wide level and there wasn't really any strategy to go out and recruit internationally uh, so that's what we've been developing at UNLV so this is uh, this is what I've been focusing on for the last uh, year and a half frankly with uh, with UNLV but first in a consulting role and then uh, now in an employee role is building uh, those an international student recruitment plan, but also a retention plan and ongoing enrollment plan that focuses on best practices at uh, building it from the ground up, both at the undergraduate level and the graduate level. We're fortunate enough uh, at UNLV that we had a large, large, sizable uh, population of international students, up to a thousand pre-pandemic. Uh, we're back up, getting back up there now, but we're looking at. Um, Uh, a population that had been 75, 80% graduate and looking to, in future intakes, balance that out more so we have more undergraduate international students joining campus each fall. And the fo- reason for that is, frankly, we, we see uh, longer, there's longer-term value of uh, having international students come in as undergraduates, particularly first-year students, and go through that four-year degree cycle. And depending on what their uh, field of study is, they might be eager to continue on with a master's or doctoral program afterwards. So uh, getting them in as undergraduates, uh, there's a uh, plethora of benefits. We are primarily, well, not primarily, but 40% of our students are uh, first-gen students at UNLV. Uh, 67 66 percent of our students have, uh, have ethnic diversity in their in their makeup so we already have diversity as part of our DNA the international students growing into that undergraduate population are certainly going to enhance that And like with any growth plan and that's ser- we're in serious growth mode uh, we have uh, we we'll have challenges we'll have growing pains and uh, we'll talk more about that in the ongoing support question uh, which is our question number three this week but in terms of best practices i I strongly encourage all of you that uh that are are in this field uh that are looking for some answers some possible uh ideas to to implement on your own campuses or strategies or countries to look at and why those might be important moving forward i think that that's uh, thursday's webinar Uh, will answer a lot of those questions Uh, myself and my two co-presenters are going to be eagerly uh, anticipating uh, your questions. So uh, we've got a great group, uh, including colleagues from Webster University uh, and also from Suffolk University's Madrid campus. So we're going to be having some very different perspectives, public, private, and an uh, overseas campus, talking about our best practices uh, across uh, a number of different types of institutions. So it should be a good good program. So I encourage you all to uh, sign up and register and at least catch the recording uh, after the fact if you can't make tomorrow's live webinar, which is at 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and registration is through the link that's dropped in the chat. So I encourage you all to do that. Uh, if you caught the newsletter on Monday if you're already subscribing the link to that webinar was also included in that newsletter so you'd be able to get that from that uh, from the newsletter as well so I encourage you all uh, to make sure you be a part of that webinar uh, we'll move on to our second question of the week which is uh, another related topic uh, but when it comes to student markets we've uh, come out of a time in uh, the early, in the mid 2000s, when particularly at the undergraduate level, we started to see larger groups of Chinese undergraduates coming to the United States, uh, and that trend lasted—an upward trajectory of Chinese undergraduates—lasted from probably 2004, five to 2015, sixteen, where it probably hit its peak, and it's been uh, uh, de- declining since then. Pandemic certainly exacerbated the decline uh, in terms of enrolled students coming directly from China. Uh, whether they can, uh, will rebound. Uh, I think there will be a rebound, but it won't be quite as significant, not back up to those 2015-16 levels, but certainly there, there will be growth in the China market, particularly at the undergrad level, than, that we haven't seen in the last three years. So as they now have freedom of movement again in China, that uh, they may even be arriving on your campuses uh, this spring. Maybe not because of visa complications if they are, weren't already uh, visa holders. That could be a challenge with consulates being closed with the spikes in COVID in China. So so that's been a challenge. So a lot of a lot of institutions have been asking, where's the next uh, big market? And there's only one other big market out there in terms of volume that can ever compete with with China, and that is India. Uh, we've talked uh, at length in, in previous uh, episodes on the Roundup about the Indian undergraduate market. Now that has been growing steadily as a percentage of uh, of of uh, undergraduates in the United States right now, undergraduate international students studying in the US outside of China, which still has a fairly sizable lead with about um, 90,000 or so undergraduates uh, from China. Uh, The next largest group is India, in terms of undergraduate students, uh, then Vietnam, and then so forth. So uh, India is uh, the number two market for undergraduate students who want to come to the U.S., and that's counterintuitive, as we've talked about in the past, uh, because most graduate students, or most students from India that have come to the U.S. in the past have been predominantly, and in many cases, 75 80%, 90% in some years, uh, at the graduate level. So the, the rise of the Indian middle class, uh, the lack of quality options at the higher ed level uh, has uh, forced many of those uh, in India to seek overseas study options. And we've seen numbers, and the most recent uh, numbers coming out of India for last year were over 680,000, I think, um, Indian students had gone abroad, not just to the U.S. There's about 200 and 50,000 or so in the United States now as of the last SEVIS report uh, from the fall. Uh, we have um, uh, uh, that number, I think, this coming year, probably by the fall, if not the spring. We're going to see Indian students in the United States as a total number, not just new students. New students have been from India have been surpassing Chinese the last three years. But for, for overall students from uh, India versus China, India will surpass China this year, no doubt about that. So it is a country that is booming. Uh, there, there's no end in sight for this growth. There are some prognosticators that are saying by the end of 2024, the number of Indians going abroad will grow from 600,000 to 1.8 8 million uh Indian studying abroad in the next year and a half or two years. So that's that's huge growth. And that obviously is not all gonna be in the United States. We've seen countries like Germany, France, come, come up on the radar of a lot of Indian students uh, as destinations for their study. We know a number go to China each year, and now that the Chinese borders are back open, there'll probably be more flooding that way. So we, we know that Indians, Indian students are are price sensitive. They're focused on post-study work options. So these are some of the things that uh, need to be part of, of any successful recruitment strategy to attract those students but certainly the market itself is only going to get bigger. <clears throat> so uh, the qu- second question is are you all in on India or not? And if not why not? So that question in terms of what uh, why India is is the way it is right now uh, it's fed by a lot of different r- why it, why the US is going to be is going to continue to be uh, the, uh, and I think um, after this year we'll also see more. Uh, Indian students coming for for higher education options uh, than are going to Canada, which right now Canada actually has had a slight lead in the last numbers coming out uh, in terms of enrolled international students. Uh, They had, I think, 20 or 30,000 more Indian students studying in Canada than we had in the U.S., but I think those numbers will flip this year as well as our, our numbers capacity and numbers is going to be far greater than what... Canada can handle so India is is gonna we're gonna be the number one destination of choice for Indian students as well we've seen their numbers grow Dramatically to the UK and will continue to grow back to Australia, but uh, US has has an exponential, not an exponential, but a significant lead on those countries, uh, UK and certainly um, Australia in terms of total number of Indians in country. Uh, As we always talk about, we've got far more capacity at our institutions uh, to grow our international populations, whereas in Australia, many institutions are already a third international um, because they have a a smaller number, 40 or less uh, universities. In the U.K., it's 150, so they have a little more capacity. They're at about 20, 25% already international, uh, so they can't grow too much more. Uh, they may need to to sustain themselves with declining uh, European students, uh, continuing decline in European students attending in the U.K. A lot of different variables are impacting that. But for the U.S., in terms of capacity, we're 5% or under in terms of our uh, you know uh, number of international students percentage of international students enrolled at our universities and many of us have much more capacity to grow on our campuses uh, particularly at the undergrad level I think but certainly depending on your grad programs and the attractiveness of those to those to the Indian market you could also see a significant growth in those areas. Oh, we do know, uh, and I've just dropped a link to um, a Share America article called "Indian American CEOs: Exemplified Countries' Shared Ambitions," and this uh, this goes through a lot of the ex- some of the examples of some of the leaders of uh, major tech companies in the United States who either came to the United States as students and then. Progressed up the chain through OPT H-1B to become CEOs of these uh, of these companies, including Google and others uh, across the United States. So the rags to riches stories of these students of these former students and immigrants to the U.S. from India uh, and it really identifies and exemplifies their American dream being realized and coming to the U.S. and making. Uh, Making a name for themselves, making uh, a life for themselves and their families, and uh, the support that they uh, receive is, is, is quite extraordinary. So I think it's really uh, critical in terms of, as, an, as a, a university, when you're talking about, or college, when you're talking about the Indian market, what are you doing specifically specifically? to reach them. And each market has its own peculiarities in terms of what the concerns might be uh, in terms of why they want to choose certain destinations. Uh, I talked earlier about uh, price sensitivity for the Indian market, also the post-study work options, the on-campus work options, CPT options, are going to be important in the discussion. The success stories you're going to need to have, uh, if not data, certainly anecdotal stories of where your graduates from India have gone, uh, in terms of employment, and directly after they finish their degrees, if, if they move on to doctoral programs or the research programs. Having that kind of those kind of stories that you can share, really will help get your foot in the door. Now. Uh, there's a couple of other, uh couple of other uh, articles here that I'll put up, pop in. And Jane, thanks for joining. Uh, I was going mention going to be talking about you a little bit later on uh, in, in, uh, in the presentation today, but uh, for, for in, ter- in terms of needing documentation on or evidence of the Indian market and how significant uh, the, um, the job training piece is for that market. They're dropping a link from a uh, recent article uh, that's India focused. That says a steady rise in Indian students staying on for job training in the United States. Uh, that's 43.9% in 2020-21 uh, signed up for OPT. Uh, then, and that's a, an increase from only uh, 12.8% in 2006-07. So in over a 15-year period, 14-15-year period, we've seen the percentage of Indians staying on for OPT. Uh, dramatic increase dramatically, where it's uh, more than almost half, a little less than half of Indian students studying in the United States plan to stay on for uh, for OPT. So, how are you marketing? Uh, in India to that group, uh, to students who are looking to come to the U.S. Are you talking about your CPT, OPT options in terms of what students have done? A list of employers where uh, students have been employed, have been hired after graduation. What are you doing in, on that front? So I, I will uh, be sharing some of that in future episodes here on the Roundup, uh, but I did want to share uh, at least a couple of stories that uh, touch on these, uh, on, the, on, on the need for, um, for if you're going to attract quality and quantity and quantity quality of Indian students uh, you need to be more engaged in uh, how you uh, differentiating how you market to this group as opposed to other countries Uh, like we talked about with China their concerns have been during the pandemic obviously and coming out of the pandemic uh, not only safety uh, when from their lens that is uh, health safety but also physical safety from crime uh, given the uh, all the stories that they've seen about Asian-American hate and Asian hate crimes that have been committed. Uh, certainly those are issues that will resonate in China. Uh, the quality issues still resonate, but the health and and, and Physical safety issues will be important. So, how are those stories of your current students being told in that regard? To answer those questions, but for India, the focus on that post-study work and your and price sensitivity is going to be uh, are going to be issues that if you're addressing well and directly to those markets, you're going to see a lot of um, a lot of value, I think, and and return in uh, ROI in your own own respects in terms of what you're going to get out of um, your recruitment efforts in that country. So, uh, Jing, Jing's question I do want to do want to address it is any ideas to bring up the number of Indian students for undergraduate studies in the United States? And Jing, I, I don't know if you you attended my uh, my session I did at RC with um, with Manisha Zaveri and Derek Alex. Uh, Manisha from Career Mosaic, one of the leading uh, agencies in India, as well as uh, Derek Alex at the University of Houston, we talked about this very issue, and Manisha addressed uh, the the dynamics as to why uh, the, uh, the, mar- the Indian undergraduate market is huge. And we've seen the rise of, of the IC3 movement, and that is counselors uh, or in high schools throughout India and across South Asia have uh, come to India the last uh, four or five years, pandemic accepted uh, to, for a conference to learn, learn, learn to become better college counselors. Uh, <laughs> would I travel with you in India? Sure, Jing. We'll get there someday, I'm sure. But uh, in terms of what we're doing, uh, what, what Indian undergraduates are looking for, the market has expanded because the middle class has grown, the lack of options, uh, quality options in their higher ed structure. Uh, the rise of international schools was one of the features that Manisha talked about in her presentation, uh, that the numbers of uh, international schools have, uh, have I think, quadrupled in the last 10 years. And I think there are over 700 international schools throughout India that enroll over 250, 300,000 students in India that are taking basically secondary school curriculum, whether it's IB, whether it's GCEA levels, IGCSE and GCSEA levels, or some inter- other internet, Cambridge prep, uh, other international credentials that are predisposing them to go abroad. So the number of undergraduates that are potentially coming out every year, uh, these stu- these schools, secondary schools that enroll over 300,000 Indian students to that are potentially looking and our parents are putting them in these schools because they want them to have options when it comes to overseas education. Might not be the U.S., might be other Western countries, might be China, might be other other destination markets in Europe, uh, but that is, uh, that is certainly, and Marcy, thanks for jumping on, and I know you're in India right now if I've been tra- watching your travel stories there. Uh, across Facebook, but I hope all the travels are going well, and I certainly know the food's amazing there, but hopefully the recruiting is as well. But uh, being all in on India right now is uh, an an, an understanding that uh, China is not going to rebound to what it was, Pre-pandemic, it is going to come back some, but it's not going to be at that same level. You will, if you're looking for just numbers, you're going to get that in spades when you look at India because their growth trajectory is is only up over the next decade. Uh, you, but you, you certainly don't want to limit yourself to just one or two countries. That's the, that's the diversity piece that we talk about uh, all the time. And, uh, and that's one of the questions we're, we're going to talk about tomorrow in the IDP webinar, IDP Connect webinar, is what's your diversi- diversification strategy? What, are, what markets are you going into? And I'll be able to share some stories tomorrow of what we're doing at UNLV in that regard because uh, we need to. Uh, we've been heavily East and South Asia dependent, as most every, every college is, because that's where 70, 70% plus of all international students in the United States are from, East and South Asia. So uh, diversifying beyond that is, is a priority for almost all institutions that are trying to do international right, uh, not just for the money and the numbers. So what, when you think about it, uh, India has to be an important piece because you have to have um, – bedrocks uh, in in terms of your recruitment plan, in terms of countries that you're developing relationships in, that you're investing time and effort, that you put marketing dollars in, that you are visiting like Marcy is in India right now. Uh, The on the ground, Uh, tours are are back up and running uh, across the board. We see uh, many of our agent partners in India are also wanting us to come and physically uh, do the affairs that they have regularly throughout the year and we're in certain periods of the year and that's something I wish we could do right now myself Uh, but I just don't have bandwidth. I'm one person operation right now but in the fall I will hopefully have another staff member on board that's uh, in the cards, at least. Uh, we're hoping that happens so that I'll have someone to go do those those direct recruitment trips, uh, including India, where I know that person will probably spend two to four weeks um, a year, probably three to four weeks a year, in India doing uh, that kind of work. So uh, we'll talk about... Uh, the diversification piece tomorrow. But uh, certainly that will be a topic that I'm sure will come up again uh, on a regular basis here on the Roundup. So thanks, Jing, for your your contributions. Partnerships in, uh, are going to be key, and that's something I mentioned in our presentation at IRC, is exploring partnerships with institutions. We know that uh, the UGC has just announced in the past month uh, their, their new policies for uh, US institutions that want to set up shop in India, which is going to be limited to the top 500 universities or if you have particular programs that, even though your institution might not be top 500, uh, if you have a top 500 program in a particular field, you might be able to offer that on, uh, in India, physically in India. So there's gonna be those kind of partnerships if you're looking to do a transnational education, uh, develop a, a campus in India, you'll have that opportunity if you're in those uh, in those ballparks with the top 500 or top programs. But we're, we've been exploring partnerships uh, with, um, with individual institutions, but also through uh, third parties, uh, one of which is UpGrad, where students are doing the first uh, year of a a master's program in India through uh, particular institutions programs. They'll do uh, a first year of a master's in uh, computer science, and then they transfer to us to finish their their master's degree. We're also looking at undergraduate programs in computer science, business, that type of thing. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot of opportunities for partnerships uh, if you're working with the right institutions the right uh, service providers that can help you get your foot in the door that can open um, open the opportunities up for undergraduate and uh, as well as graduate students in India so thanks for your contributions on those topics guys uh, Jing and Marcy now uh, our third question of the day is the bigger picture going back we started big going, uh, going uh, in, into India and then we're coming back out and talking about uh, the question do your international recruitment plans include ongoing support? Now uh, the reason I focus on this issue is uh, so often uh, we, I run into colleagues at institutions where their leadership just see bottom line dollars. And that's their motivation for doing international student recruitment. And they don't care where they come from. They just want bodies on campus. There may be uh, very legitimate budget reasons for looking at out-of-state international. If you're a state institution, why you need to go that route? Because you have a declining uh, in-state population, domestic population, that you can go after. So you need to broaden your scope. And if your institution is looking in, in their growth mindset, you need definitely to include international in that piece. But... The best laid plans of bringing in hundreds and thousands of international students to a campus that's not ready to meet their needs uh, can be decimated in in, in your in, in a matter of a semester or a year. If you've done all the upfront work to bring them in, but none of the back-end work to make sure that they're taken care of from the time they land on campus, even before that in terms of pre-arrival, but certainly by the time they land uh, in your city to the time they get to your campus through that orientation program, into housing hopefully and have that sorted before they get to campus, to their academic adjustment to classes, to their social adjustment into organizations and clubs and events on campus, to the opportunities for for work on campus, to CPT, OPT opportunities, working with career services, working with your alumni offices to help them on the back end of their journey through your institution. How organized and seamless is that journey on your campus? And that's why this question is worded the way it is. Do 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 your plans beyond recruitment include ongoing support? We all have international student scholar services office or some variation on that. Our staff that handle the immigration pieces for those students, but and minimally, there's our campuses will have both of admissions, international admissions, at least individuals who handle international admissions and individuals that are the advisors that handle their immigration pieces. And those are the kind of two bedrocks you got to have. Sometimes that's the same person at very small institutions, private institutions, smaller colleges. But how many of us actually have, beyond that, have a concrete plan for how your international students are going to be cared for throughout their journey? Most of us have that prospect to enroll piece, at least have some structure to it. But how many of us have that nailed down and can say with a straight face that, hey, we are taking care of our international students from after they get to campus throughout that orientation. Do we have an ongoing orientation through that first term? Are we working with the various campus offices that they're gonna interact with on a regular basis? Are we doing cross-cultural training for staff in those offices so they're not just always sending the kid with an accent to your office regardless of whether they're international or not? Are we working intuitively on programming and services that those other offices need to provide that are specific to international students and again it'll, it'll affect you in housing and affect you in employment campus employment but career services and alumni need to be a part of that conversation uh, in terms of making sure your campus is meeting those needs all the way through their experience and then having a holistic plan um, I, I've been very fortunate now uh, i, I thank Jing for being on the call earlier uh, but we had a chat the other day about uh, uh, a book that he's co-authoring with a number of other luminaries in the international ed field, and I've been invited to to submit a proposal to write a chapter for that book. And those who've been following the roundup for a period of time know that um, that we talk about the six Ps of strategic international enrollment management, and this is kind of answering that question, wrapping up this question in a bow here, uh, where we talk about, Uh, the planning side, uh, talk about uh, the need for perspective, not just on campus, but globally, the need for the right platforms, the right partners, a focus on personalization and peers in that student recruitment, enrollment, services, graduation model that you need to have if you're gonna be truly successful and holistic in your approach to designing that kind of a plan. Because it's not all, like I said, not all about bringing them in the door. You gotta take care of them uh, once they're on campus. One thing we've in- introduced this past year uh, at UNLV, we're staffing up again on the student side is a peer mentor program that's going to be sort of an ambassador on the recruitment side and a student peer mentoring on the services side that's going to be working with uh, these cadre students, going to be working with our new students throughout their their time on campus. So it's really an important part of our journey at UNLV to to nail down this journey and make sure that all hands are on deck. So it's not just the International Student Service Office, not just me and the Recruitment and Partnerships Office, not just our international programs that handle study abroad. It's everybody, our English language center, uh, housing, student employment, career services, alumni, all of the different places of uh, that interact most with our international students and then others. Uh, student Affairs obviously is going to be an important piece of this puzzle. And the six Ps according to Marty, yes, thank you, Jing. Yeah, that's, that's going to be our focus and uh, of the um, uh, of this chapter that I'll hopefully be submitting in the next uh, next uh, week or so, uh, for for that book uh, that Jing is co-authoring, and um, very very proud to have been asked uh, to contribute, humbled to be asked, uh, to, frankly, uh, to be included in that uh, in that uh, that production. So this making sure that if you're not having these discussions on your campus about that full life cycle journey of international students and having at least a working group on campus that is meeting to address these issues and bring in the right people from the right offices uh if you're not doing that that's something that that needs to start happening particularly if you're going into growth mode into new markets and and and, potentially addressing or having available more funds to go recruit. Uh, you also need to fund fund those back-end services, too, because that's an important piece of that puzzle. And uh, universities that can see that vision from the start, particularly if you have top-level down leadership, that provost-president level, that see the value of international, see that this is something that the the university needs to invest in, if it's going to grow, if it's going to be what it needs to be for all students uh, in terms of a, a, the medium through which uh, they can achieve their dreams. Uh, that is something that I think as, as international educators we have to be attuned to. Uh, whatever our, our piece in that puzzle is, whether it's that student services piece, that recruitment piece, uh, we need to have that thinking in everything we do related to our international student activity on campus. So that's what I have for you this week on the Roundup. Thanks again for being a part of the conversation. And Jing and and Marcy, great to have you on board live. And for those that watch on repeats, uh, either on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter, or our Facebook page, uh, thank you for uh, making us a part of your weekly international education. And that, uh, Marcy, you hit the nail on the head there. It's not just about recruitment, it's about that international enrollment and retention. And alumni have to be a part of that. uh, And tracking alumni is also one of those bigger picture questions that most campuses don't do well, uh, or if at all. So uh, those that do, uh, you want to be the case studies for for successful adoption your, you know how you did it, uh, share those, and uh, we'll be happy to spotlight you here on the Roundup too. So until next time, we wish you all the very best and have a great rest of your day. Cheers.